for those of you who are new here, I'm, I'm Chris Dirks. I'm the main teaching pastor here at Southland. And, and uh, last week I started a new series that we're, gonna, we're working on now. And uh, is this book, is the Bible really God's word? And I think this is a hugely important topic uh, right now because it's being attacked both from the outside and from the inside. And uh, one of the big reasons actually I'm preaching this series is because of the attacks that are being made on the Bible now from inside the church, from people who call themselves Christians. I think the attacks from the outside, people who are not Christians, people who are atheists, things like that, I mean, that's just always going on. We can just expect that. I think some of the most deceitful things that are being said and some of the, the most dangerous seeds of doubt that are being sowed today are being sowed from within by people who call themselves Christians. And there's an attack on, is this thing really the Word of God? And is the whole thing actually the Word of God? And so last week we started by looking at what did Jesus believe about the Bible? Right? We looked at what does Jesus believe about the Bible. Now, Jesus didn't have the whole Bible we have uh, now. He didn't have the New Testament. And I'm going to talk a whole bunch about the New Testament today. But he had the whole Old Testament just like we have it today. All right? And so we began to look last week at what did Jesus believe about the Bible. Now, that's not going to be very convincing if you're here today and you're an atheist or you're a non-Christian. This message isn't speaking to you and last week's message wasn't speaking to you because you don't care what Jesus thought. You don't believe in him. You don't believe him to be the son of God. So what he thought is not a proof to you about God's word. But if you're here today and you call yourself a Christian, then these messages are everything. Because if you call yourself a Christian, that means you believe that Jesus is the son of God. And if Jesus really is the Son of God, then what he believes about the Bible is everything. That's everything. You can't be a Christian and disagree with Jesus. You know that? How could you, be, how could you disagree with Jesus and be a Christian? If you're a Christian, you believe him to be God. By definition, he knows everything. If you really believe that, how could you disagree with him? So last week, we spent a whole message looking at what did Jesus believe about the Bible? And so we looked at four points. I'm just going to throw those up there just to quickly review them. First of all, we looked at the fact that Jesus believed all Scripture is from God's mouth. Jesus wasn't a skeptic. He wasn't one of these critics that says, you know, they just borrowed a bunch of stuff from their culture and different myths and they put it together and it's a human work. That's not what Jesus believed. You can believe that, but you can't believe that and also believe Jesus was the Son of God at the same time because Jesus believed that all of the words in here, yes, they were written down by human beings, but they were from God's mouth. And we looked at a bunch of scriptures. In fact, those of you wanting to see more scriptures, interesting thing, Pastor Ray has been working on a project. I didn't know he was working on it. He didn't know I was going to do this message series that I'm doing. And he showed me after the message last week, he said, you know what I've been working on in my devotions and stuff the last couple of months? And he's been, he has made a big point form list of, of a, I don't know all, but it's got to be close to all, uh, all of the instances in the Gospels as he's been going through the Gospels over and over again the last couple of months and, and, and marking down all the places where Jesus affirms the Old Testament to be the Word of God or that events in the Old Testament actually happen, they're true and accurate and all that sort of stuff. And any of you who would like to see that, I'm going to make it available to you uh, this week, put it online. Or, or something like that. Maybe you have a few copies printed out for next week and, uh, and things like that. But Jesus believed that the scripture was from God's mouth. He didn't think it was just human mythology or human writings, okay? Uh, Jesus also believed that all the historical details in scripture are true and accurate. 
Jesus also believed, as I showed you last week, Jesus believed that the words of Scripture cannot be broken. In other words, Jesus believed that if it says in here that it happened, it happened. If it says in here that it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And if it says in here that a particular action is wrong, then that means it's wrong. And if it says in here that a particular action is right, then that means it's right. That's what Jesus believed about the Bible. If you're a Christian and you say you believe Jesus is God, that actually kind of locks you in on what you have to believe. You're actually, the moment you call yourself a Christian, you've actually kind of cornered yourself and you've now put yourself in a position where what Jesus believes is what you have to believe. And the fourth thing we saw from Scripture last week that Jesus believed is that the words of Scripture are authoritative for our lives. In other words, that means they must be obeyed. And I showed you a few examples. I could show you many more, but one of the things, if you actually just read the Gospels, what you'll find over and over again is people would go to Jesus And they would have questions about life. They would have questions about sexual morality. They would have questions about marriage. They would have questions about divorce. They would have questions about all kinds of practical everyday life things. And over and over and over again in the Gospels, we find Jesus giving a very common answer. And what he says is, they say, what do we do about divorce? What are we to do about marriage? What are we to do about this? And Jesus will say to them over and over again, what does it say in the Bible? And he points them back to the Bible. Three times Jesus was tempted by the devil. In all three cases, he answers the devil, I can't because of what the Bible says, and he quotes to him from Deuteronomy. So Jesus not only, he believed these things to be God's words, not human words, and as a result, he believed them to be binding, that we actually have to obey the things it says in here. Now, of course, I know right away, some of the skeptics go, well, there's certain things in the, in the Old Testament we don't obey anymore, we don't do the sacrifices, and I'm going to talk about that next week. Very important topic. Because yes, there were some things in here that God put in there uh, that were from the beginning only meant to be temporary. But anything that he put in here that has to do with right or wrong, Anything he has to do with what's, go- what's coming, what's going to happen, what he's like, all of that stuff is absolutely eternal, which is why one of the things I find kind of amusing right now, uh, in sort of a bad way, I guess, not in a funny way, but one of the things I find very interesting now and kind of funny is there's this whole subculture, there's this whole subculture online, and it's, getting, it's become very popular with a lot of young people, and it's, this, uh, it's called Red Letter Christianity. Now, I want to just say something right here. Um, some of the people, a number of the people that are calling themselves red letter Christians, they're actually solid, godly, wonderful people. Okay, but within this subculture that right now is becoming very popular, this whole idea of red letter Christianity, you have a number of people, and what they mean by being red letter Christians is this. They say, we only want to obey the red letters in the Gospels, the words that Jesus said. Doesn't that sound spiritual? Like, we just, we want to get back. Their whole thing is we're going to be a movement back to true Christianity, back before everything got messed up. We're just going to follow what Jesus himself actually said. And the interesting thing I find about that, the reason I find that so funny is because if you actually take the red letters seriously, if you actually believe and say, I'm only going to do what Jesus said in the red letters, you're going to find yourself always going back to the Old Testament because he always pointed people there. If you truly are a red-letter Christian, you're going to end up being a whole Bible Christian because all over in the red letters, Jesus said, what does the rest of the Bible say? And really, should this be so surprising to us? Because if Jesus really is the Son of God and he really is the one who created the whole universe, then he's the one who spoke to Moses. Ultimately, all of these words are his, not just the red letters. Isn't that true? 
If Jesus actually is God, it's a little deceptive to say I'm only following the words of Jesus, so I'm only following the red letters. That's a little deceptive because ultimately if you believe Jesus is God, which is what he says in the red letters, then you have to believe that all the letters are from him because he said it's all the word of God. And I want to show you something here in Matthew chapter 5. I want to show you what Jesus said. And by the way, if you're following along in your Bibles here in Matthew chapter 5, you will see that these letters are in red. Do not think, red letters, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's our Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. Let me ask you a question here. This is a, this is a real tough question. Are you ready for it? I hope you guys are thinking. Have heaven and earth passed away yet? For some of you that was difficult, really. Have heaven and earth passed away yet? Uh, no, we're still here. Earth is still here. Jesus said, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not the tiniest dot, not a word will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, and he's here talking about the law and the prophets, our Old Testament, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That should be a warning to a number of preachers in our land today. Will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So in the Old Testament it says, do not murder. In the Old Testament, it says, do not covet. In the Old Testament, it says, respect your elders. In the Old Testament, it says, honor your father and your mother. In the Old Testament, it says in Leviticus 19, it says, do not take advantage of a handicapped person. All of those things are God's eternal law. And God says, Jesus says in the red letters, blessed is the one who teaches God's good laws and does them. So is it possible to just be a red-letter Christian? No. If you really are a red-letter Christian, you're going to be a whole Bible Christian because Jesus himself will not let us stay in just the red letter. So it's clear that Jesus had huge confidence in the Scriptures, and the interesting thing is if we look at what the rest of the apostles uh, said about the Scriptures as well, we'll find that Jesus' confidence rubbed off on the apostles. I mean, these are the men who actually lived with him three years. They did ministry with him. They were all willing to die for him. In fact, all of them but one were martyred for Jesus in the end. These are the men that knew Jesus, loved Jesus, walked with Jesus. And after being with Jesus for three years and knowing Jesus that intimately and taking in all of his teachings, all of them came out of it with a huge confidence in the word of God. Let me read you what the Apostle Peter said about the Bible in 2 Peter 1, 19-21. And Peter says this, and we have something more sure. By the way, if you look at the verses just before this, Peter talks about how we can have confidence in the Christian faith because it's based on things that really happened. And he talks about how he himself was an eyewitness to Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the grave. And you might think that someone who's been an eyewitness to Jesus, they would say, well, now that I've seen Jesus in person, I don't need the rest of the Bible anymore. You would think that maybe, you know, once I've seen Jesus, I've seen it all, I don't need the rest of the Bible. And that's not what Peter says. Right after talking about being an eyewitness to the things that happened, he says this, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, and he's here speaking about the Old Testament scriptures, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy, speaking of the, the, the ones in, in Scripture, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Two things I want you to notice here. First of all, Peter could not have a higher view of the Scriptures than what we see right there. You could not get a higher view of Scriptures than what we see right there. Peter didn't say, you know, I've been, uh, I've been in seminary for 10 years. I've been studying, studying literary criticism. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with seminary. And there's nothing wrong with studying literary criticism or any of that sort of stuff. But in some people, it sows doubt instead of faith. Peter did not say, you know, I've studied this book. You know, I've studied all this stuff in seminary for 10 years. And as a result, I now know that this is mostly just a human work. And they borrowed some myths and stuff from their culture. That's not what he says. He's been with Jesus for three years and he takes the highest view of Scripture you possibly could. He says, there isn't a word in here that doesn't come from God. Men spoke from God, not their own interpretations. Men wrote it down, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter said about the Scriptures. And he doesn't have the Gospels yet. I mean, they were passing on the traditions already at this point. But he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. You would do well to pay attention to them as to a light shining in a dark place. And I'm going to come back here to 2 Peter in just a moment, but I want to just remind you of another passage, this one from the Apostle Paul that we looked at last week, where Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And the reason I'm teaching this to you is because many in the Christian church today in the West are being deceived. And if you get deceived on this point right here, the rest of your Christian faith is going to be off right off the beginning. Because everything we believe, we believe because it's here. And so when the devil can sow doubt here, he has put a crack right in the very foundation. You can't live the Christian faith properly the way we're told about in here the moment you begin to doubt that this thing is actually from God. And so I'm trying in this series, there is, a, there is people are falling away, many, and I've talked about prophecies in here, we've talked about this in messages, that the Bible predicts that in the last days, many people, many people calling themselves Christians will fall away from Jesus. And one of the reasons I'm preaching this message series to you is I'm trying to equip you because I don't want anyone here in this building to be one of the ones that falls away. And so when you're reading a book, the next time you're reading a book and it's by, written by a really nice person and he's a Christian and he sounds great and he writes nice, or the next time you're listening to a preacher and he's really nice and he talks nice and he does all that sort of stuff and then he begins to sow doubt about is this actually from God, I want you to remember this. That person, that man, that woman is teaching you something different than Jesus and the apostles taught. That doesn't mean he's wrong necessarily, logically, because you could become an atheist and atheists would just say, well, of course, of course, Jesus and the apostles were wrong. But if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you want to call yourself a Christian, then the moment you hear someone teaching you that this is not the Word of God or that parts of this are not the Word of God, you must realize they are teaching you something that different than what Jesus and the apostles taught. And so in order to be consistent, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you've got to stick with what Jesus and the apostles taught. If we go back to, to 2 Peter there, the one other thing I just want to draw out there that I kind of touched on already is... Um, is this whole idea of, you know, Peter is completely here. Uh, he's a New Testament Christian. 
I mean, Jesus, he's seen Jesus die on the cross. He's seen Jesus uh, go back to heaven. He's seen, the Holy Spirit has come on them at Pentecost. He's got both feet firmly in New Testament times. And according to a lot of the teachers today, that means the Old Testament no, no longer matters. That means the no, Old Testament no longer holds true. That means we don't, no longer have to obey the Old Testament. And I want you to notice what Peter says, two feet firmly in New Testament times. And he says, you would do well to pay attention. You would do well to pay attention to these scriptures as to a light shining in a dark place because these are God's words and they are eternal. So again, my point in these first two messages, I'm harping on something and that is consistency. Consistency. You can be an atheist, you can be a non-Christian and you can gladly doubt all the things in the Bible. Obviously you would. But if you are a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, then that means you believe Jesus is God. If you believe Jesus is God and that his apostles, that he, that he trained these apostles, they died on the cross and all these sorts of things, then there's certain things you have to believe about some very basic subjects and one of them is that the word of God is the word of God. Very important. So, next question. I want to just shift gears here a little bit. How do we know what, that we have what they actually wrote? So now, you know, you've been showing us these verses, Chris, and Peter said, you know, Men spoke from God, and Jesus said this. Well, maybe, Chris, I mean, this is a couple thousand years later. Sure, I would believe what Jesus and the apostles believed. I just don't know that we have the words here that they spoke, right? That, that's, a, that's a legitimate question. How do we know that we actually have the words we're supposed to have? How do we know we actually have the books in here we're supposed to have? Because some Christians would say, I'll gladly believe whatever Jesus and the apostles believed. I just don't believe that... We have what they actually said in here. I believe this thing has been changed. I believe we have the wrong books in here, all that sort of thing. And so what I want to spend some time on now is, is I want to show you how the Bible got put together. Can we trust the Bible? How come we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Gospels and we don't have the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas? You know, why do, you know, you know, the Catholics have some books in their Bible and we have different ones. How do we get the books we have and can we really trust that these are the things that Jesus and the apostles said? So I'm going to show you how the books of the Bible got put together. But before we do that, I want to just take you, we're just going to pause this message. I'm going to go on a little rabbit trail, which I think is really important. Before we get to the history and the facts of how the Bible got put together, we have to talk about a heart issue. Okay? Because really, in the end, trusting whether this thing is the word of God, it's going to come down to a heart issue, and it really is going to come down to what is your picture of God. What you believe about the Bible is ultimately going to come down to your picture of God and what you believe about God. Is God big enough and loving enough to make sure that he preserved for us a trustworthy copy of this? That's really what the question comes down to. And many Christians today would say that God, essentially what they're saying when they say this book is not trustworthy, what they're saying is God was not big enough or either that or he didn't care, but he was not big enough or not caring enough to make sure that we got a proper copy of this so we could know what he wants us to do. And so I want to just take you through a little bit of a line of reasoning. This is, this is so important because ultimately as a Christian, you're not going to remember all the facts and all the history necessarily, but you're going to remember a heart issue. Okay. So let's talk about how do we come to a place where we're a Christian in the first place. Like, the, the question of whether or not we can believe this is actually not the first question we should ask. The first question we have to ask ourselves is, is there a God? That's the first question we have to ask. I mean, every person, every human being in the world has to, at some point in their, quest, in their life, deal with the question of, where do we come from? 
How did this start? Every, per- every human being has to do it. Not just Christians, non-Christians have to do it too. And basically, when you ask that first question, there's only two options. When you look at the universe all around us, you can either say, all of this came from nothing, or all of this came from someone made this. Okay? That's our only two options. Every human being must at root. The first question, before you even talk about the Bible, you have to talk about, is there a God? Is there even a God out there? And so, of course, you know, atheists would say, no, there is nothing. If we study science, we can, we can, you know, we would believe, this is what they would say, we would believe that everything came out of nothing. Of course, that's incredibly unscientific because I've never seen that repeated in a lab, but nonetheless. Okay, now if you're like the vast majority of humankind that has ever lived and that is alive right now, the vast majority of human beings alive right now and who have ever lived would tell you differently. They look at the world around us and they say, this must have come from something. Someone must have made this. Now, of course, you put, a, you put a religious person and an atheist in a room and you ask people, who has more faith? Almost everyone will answer the religious person has more faith. But I don't believe that. I think it takes way more faith to be an atheist than to be a religious person, don't you? Because the religious person is simply making a deduction based on something they observe to be true every single day of their lives. Every human being who has ever lived observes something to be true every single day. We observe this hundreds of thousands of times during the course of our lifetimes, and that is this. If I'm walking along and I run into something that is clearly designed, it is engineered, it is complex, it carries information, I know that someone has made this and it didn't just pop out of nothing. I mean, that's just everyday observation. I have little children that understand that. If I walk along in the hallway somewhere and I find an iPhone lying on the ground, I don't pick it up and say, wow, this thing spontaneously exploded out of nothing. (laughs) That doesn't cross my mind. And if someone would tell me that, I would say, I don't have as much faith as you because I'm quite sure this thing was put together by somebody with intelligence. And if I pick up a laptop at the, you know, at the store, if I find a watch or a piece of clothing you know, in the forest, I know every time that this thing was put together by someone with intelligence, it did not just spontaneously appear. Okay? The atheist, on the other hand, has to believe something he has never actually seen with his eyes. That's why I say it takes far more faith to be an atheist. Far more. I don't have nearly enough faith to be an atheist. An atheist has to say, even though I've never ever seen it happen, and even though nobody else has ever seen it happen, I have to believe that everything I see that exists came out of nothing. That there was an explosion of nothing. Somehow nothing exploded. Very combustible stuff, that nothingness. (laughs) It exploded. And I know that on the news, whenever I see an explosion on the news, stuff gets broken. But this explosion was different. This explosion built stuff. And you say, well, that's not possible. Just give it a trillion years. Oh, if I give it a trillion years, that makes it more possible. Okay. (laughs) See, it takes far more faith to be an atheist. So every human being at some point in their life has to answer the question, did we come from nothing or is there a God? The vast majority of human beings say there must be a God. And if you call yourself a Christian, you've made that decision somewhere along the way. And you've made the decision that it is almost impossible to believe that there couldn't be a God. There has to be a God because how else can we exist? Well, once you've answered that question, 
Now you have to answer another question, and you're still not at the Bible. We still haven't gotten to, is the Bible reliable or not? You, that's, that's not the first or the second question. The first question is just plain, is there a God? The second question is, if there is a God, which God is it? You look a lot around at all the different religions, and you, you know Hinduism and Buddhism, and you look at Islam and all these things, and Christianity and Judaism, and you say, which God is it? Okay, I, I can't believe everything came from nothing. I've never seen it happen. There has to be a God. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. So now, which God is it? Now, I don't have time to get into all the reasons why, you know, we think it's extremely reasonable and why it makes the most sense that it's the Christian God, but there are many very good reasons to believe that it's the Christian God. And we don't say that out of ignorance. You can do comparisons. That'd be a good course for us to do sometime here at Southland, do a comparison of all the major religions of the world, and when you do a comparison, I tell you, it only builds your confidence when you're a Christian. There are very good reasons to believe that the God who made everything, because someone must have made all this, and that the, the God who did it is the God we read about in the Bible, the Christian God, Yahweh, who took on flesh and was named Jesus Christ. Okay? So now let's say you're one of the 2.2 billion people on the earth, and like many of us here at South and most of you here today, you've made those two choices, okay? So now you've, you've already answered two questions. You've answered the question, you've said, I, can, I, I just cannot believe in a universe where there isn't a God. How could that work? And secondly, you've said, the only God that really makes sense to me is the Christian God. Now you've, once you've answered those two things, you now call yourself a Christian and, and just like 2.2 billion other people on the earth right now. Now you finally are ready to ask yourself the question, is the Bible reliable? Because you've, you've answered the first two questions. So now we ask the question, is the Bible reliable? Okay? And some Christians today are saying it is not. But that is actually an inconsistent picture of God. And I want to show you how. Because once you've answered those first two questions and you've called yourself a Christian, you now believe in a God that is big enough to create the universe. And the universe is pretty big. It's huge. It's complex. And you believe, because you're a Christian, that there's a God who made that. That God must be astoundingly big and powerful. You believe in a God who is big enough and powerful enough to make the universe. But there's a second thing you believe about God, because you already answered the first two questions. And the second thing you believe about God is you believe that he is loving enough and caring enough of human beings to take on flesh and die on a cross for our sins. You believe those two things. That's why you call yourself a Christian. So now on question number three, are you going to turn around and say, I don't believe this book is trustworthy? Because if you say that, what you're saying is that the same God who is big enough to create the universe and loving enough to die on the cross for my sins was not big enough to preserve for me a proper copy of what he wants from me. Do you see how that is inconsistent? The moment you believe in a God who's big enough to create everything and who loves me enough to die for me, you already believe in a God who is more than big enough and more than powerful enough and certainly would care to work through human affairs and history to make sure that a proper copy of his words to us were preserved. It's only consistent. It is inconsistent to think of a God like that who couldn't keep for us a proper copy of this. And we can, we can derive great faith and assurance from that fact. Amen? Okay, but those aren't facts. That's not history. That's just, I wanted to show you how you have, just thinking, just think through who God is. And if you don't believe he's trustworthy enough to keep us for this or strong enough to do this, maybe you need to go back to question two and figure out a bigger, stronger God who's big enough to create this universe and do things like that. But the amazing thing is history and facts bear this out, okay? Let's look at history and let's look at facts. 
How did this book get put together? How do we get the books in here that we have? Why do we have some and not have others? Can we trust this thing? Well, we believe in a God who's big enough to keep it for us. Now let's look at how he did it. Old Testament, I'm only going to spend a minute there. Talked a bit about this last week. But the Old Testament, how were the books put together? I'm just going to start with the time of Jesus. In the time of Jesus and the apostles, the Jews already had their closed scripture. Genesis through Malachi was organized a little differently. And Jesus and the apostles, all as, I've, as I've shown you these first two weeks, all clearly affirmed that it was the word of God. So we don't even need to question it that much. The thing you need to remember about the early church is they didn't consider themselves to be starting a brand new religion. The first Christians didn't think of themselves as, hey, we're done with this Judaism thing. We're starting a new religion, Christianity. That's not what they thought. Jesus was prophesied in the Jewish scriptures. They viewed themselves as the true continuation of the Jewish faith. So the early Christians, it didn't even cross their mind to get rid of the Old Testament. They just received it as it was. That was their Bible. That was the Bible they'd been following all along, and now the prophecies were coming true. Jesus had come to die for our sins. And Jesus himself grew up and lived on that Bible, and he affirmed it to be the Word of God, and so did all of his apostles. So the early church just took the Jewish Bible as is and as affirmed by our Lord, and they just put it, and that was the start of our Christian Bible. So I want to go on to the New Testament. Before I do that, I know some of you may be thinking, you maybe know someone who's Catholic or you've seen a Catholic Bible, and you may be wondering, well, why does the Catholic Bible have seven more books in the Old Testament than we do? And for a lot of people, that casts seeds of doubt because they think, well, are, you know, is our Bible just sort of made up and one church picked that one and one church picked that one? And so that's how we came up with our Bible and it casts doubt on whether this thing is the Word of God. So here's what you need to know about why the Catholics have seven more books in their Old Testament than we do. First thing you need to know is the Jewish people, and in Jesus' time as well, did not have those seven books as part, of their, uh, as part of their Old Testament canon. Those were just books that were out there, okay? They're called now the Apocrypha, those seven books. But the Apocrypha were just books that were out there. Some people considered them to be good books. Other people did not, but they were never considered to be Scripture by Jesus or his apostles or by any of the Jewish people up to that time. They were also never considered to be Scripture during any of the first hundreds of, and hundreds of years in the early church. The Apocrypha, those seven extra books in the Old Testament, only got put in the Catholic Bible in 1546. That's 1,500 years after Jesus. It was never in the original Bible. It's the Catholics that changed their Old Testament, not us. And you say, now why would they do that? Well, many historical reasons, but part of the reason was that was right during the Reformation and the Protestant church, you know, Martin Luther and all those guys were attacking the Catholic church for a lot of their doctrines. Some of the doctrines they were attacking the Catholic church for were things like purgatory and praying for the dead and doing works of merit for people who were already dead to somehow get them to heaven. And one of the reasons the Catholic Church added the Apocrypha in is because you can't find support for those doctrines in the rest of our Bible, but you can find support for them in some of the books of the Apocrypha, and so the Catholic Church brought them in and made them part of their Bible. That's part of the reason why they're there, okay? So that's the Apocrypha. But our Old Testament that we have in our Bibles here today is exactly what Jesus had and exactly what Jesus affirmed to be the Word of God. All right, let's talk about the New Testament. What about the New Testament? How do we get these 27 books that we now call our New Testament? Can we trust that these are the actual words that the apostles wrote and that Jesus said? Can we trust that these are the right books, that we're not missing some that we need or that we don't have some in here that are untrustworthy? Well, how do we get the New Testament? Well, let's talk about a little bit of history. Let's talk story time here a little bit. So Jesus dies, rises from the grave, Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes down the church, church starts to explode. 
You know, we read in Acts at one point 3,000 people got saved in a day. In another, in another case, 5,000 people got saved in a day. But the early church is exploding. The Holy Spirit is moving this movement. People are believing that Jesus is God. And it's spreading all over the known world, all over the Roman Empire very rapidly. Churches are popping up all over the place. Now, with the rapid spread of Christianity, there was also a rapid, you know, rise of questions. These new Christians have questions. And they're all over the Roman Empire. They've got all kinds of questions. Who is Jesus? Like, he's man and he's God. They had to learn all of that, right? And what, did, you know, dying on the cross, how did he, you know, how our sins are forgiven? How does salvation work? Heaven, hell, all these sorts of things. People, all these new Christians, thousands and thousands of new Christians, they've got tons and tons of questions. And so in the early decades after Jesus' life, there, there's a flurry of letters that start to go about. They didn't have the internet then. They didn't have email. They didn't have cell phone. They didn't have text. I mean, if it happened nowadays, it'd be on text and email. Okay, and we'd be reading our Bible online, I guess, or whatever, right? But, but they were writing letters. So church leaders were writing letters, thousands and thousands of letters. Many, you know, most by far, the vast majority, we don't have in here. So the apostles were writing letters. People the apostles knew were writing letters. Other church leaders were writing letters. But leaders are writing letters. That's how they were communicating with different churches all over the place. And they're answering questions and all this sort of thing, okay? So now imagine you're one of these early churches, okay? So you're one of these early churches, and now you get a letter from one of the church leaders. Now, um, you know, you get letters from different people, and they're all good. You know, they're trustworthy men and women, and you get a letter from them. Okay, good, that's a good message. But particularly, there's some that really matter to you. Anything coming from the disciples or that group of apostles in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem was viewed in the early decades of the church until Jerusalem was sacked. The early church was viewed, the church in Jerusalem, led by the, the apostles, was the head of the movement, Okay. So now you're one of these early churches, and you're getting letters from different people, and so you get a letter from a trusted church leader. You read it to the church. Good message, good word. But every once in a while, you get a message from one of the apostles or one of Jesus' own family member who also became apostles there, like James and Jude and, and people like that, and you get one of these messages. These are real important messages now because you, you believe, you're a new Christian. You, be, you became a Christian because you believe Jesus, who just lived just a few years ago, was actually God, and he actually rose from the dead. So you want to hear from people who actually saw him. So you get one of these letters from one of the apostles or one of their close associates and you read this to the church. But this is an important one and the Holy Spirit just moves in the body. I mean, you guys know how that works. You know how when God's speaking and you're in a group of people and something, someone says something and you just know that is God speaking to us here today. And that happens as these letters get read. The Holy Spirit just testifies in believer spirits and they go, wow, that was a word from God. And what they do then is they go back and they copy this thing out and they send it out to three or four other churches they know in the area. And so what's happening is you've got all these letters circulating all over the world. Letters, Christian letters, explaining letters, encouraging letters, rebuking letters. But some letters are just kind of being forgotten. It's kind of a one-time thing. They're kind of lost and they're never read again or they're just for a specific situation. But other letters are beginning to spread and be copied and go all over the place and they stick around. All right? And some of these letters are just so, so powerful that the churches, they don't just read them once. They keep them, and they reread them again and again in the churches, okay? And so what begins to happen is that in the, in the, in the early days, and remember, there's no instant communication here. This is all by letters. So it takes a while for certain letters. Like, certain letters are starting to spread all over the Roman Empire, but it takes a while. Just because one group of churches over here is, you know, has Paul's letter to the Philippians doesn't mean that this, church, this group of churches over here hasn't yet. It could take years for it to kind of just spread. There's no instant communication. 
It's not like highly centralized and the disciples in Jerusalem are controlling who's getting what. It's a very decentralized process where people in their areas are feeling things out in the Spirit for themselves. Each church is testing what is going on. By the way, I can't think of a process that would be harder to manipulate than that one. See, a lot of Christians today, you want to just stop this for just a second? A lot of Christians today, the reason they begin to question this, one of the reasons is there's this lie. There's this lie about how the New Testament got put together. And the lie is this. The lie is some wicked, self-absorbed church leaders, like a few hundred years after the fact, some, you know, Catholic leaders got together in a group and just decided we better make a Bible so we can control people easier. And they just randomly picked the books that agreed with their theology and kept out the ones that didn't, and that's how we got the Bible we have today. That's what a lot of people, that's their picture of how the Bible got put together. And if you have that picture, you're not going to trust what we have in here. But the, the actual facts on the ground, the actual facts of history, couldn't be any more opposite from that picture. It's not possible to be more opposite than what actually happened. Because what actually happened, there, never, there was never in history... There was never a, um, a meeting in history of church leaders where church leaders just sat down and decided what the books of the Bible to be were going to be. I'm going to tell you about a, a meeting in 393 when some church leaders got together to confirm what the church already knew. But there was never a church meeting where church leaders sat down and said, well, we have to control what's going on here. We better make a Bible that fits with our theology. That never happened. It was the most decentralized process you could imagine. Church after church, thousands, tens of thousands of regular, ordinary Christians like you and me spread all over the world, and they would get a letter, and they would test each letter, and they would preach them, and they would live them, and they would listen to them, and they would test them according to what they knew. And what happened is that over time, these collections start to pile up of the really good ones. The ones that answer their questions, the ones that deal with real foundational theology, the ones that the Holy Spirit bears witness in the hearts of the people who heard it, there's these collections begin to build up of the really good letters. And you know what the really amazing thing is? Without any kind of centralized communication, without cell phones, without internet, within a hundred years of Jesus being gone, you go all over the world, all over the Roman Empire without central communication, but you go all over the world and you go to different churches and what you will find is that the churches all have basically the same collection. Oh yeah, there's a few differences here and there. This one keeps these ones, a couple of these, and these, this one here doesn't have that one, but it has this one. But you have, out in, within 100 years, you have 21 of the 27 books we have here, 21 of the 27 books are accepted in you, pretty much universally in all except the heretical churches that they are accepted as God's word, 21 of our 27 books. You have already within 100 years, you have, and remember, it takes a while for these letters even to spread. But within, within 100 years, you have 21. You've got all four Gospels. You've got all 13 of Paul's epistles. You've got the book of Acts. You've got Hebrews. You've got 1 Peter. And you've got 1 John. I, I hope I'm not forgetting it here, but you have 21. And everybody around the world agrees. Without anyone ever having a meeting to say these are what the books of the Bible should be, you have in the church 21 of the 27 already set. What are, you say, well, what about the other six? What about, you know, the short ones, Second and Third John and Jude and uh, Second Peter and then, of course, Revelation and James? What about, what about those six? How do we get those? Those were mostly accepted in most of the churches, but there was some dispute in some places. Over the next hundred years after that, the dispute over those six went down as well. 
And there was two other books. There was the Shepherd of Hermas and there was the Epistle of Barnabas. Those are two books that many people also considered scripture, which we don't have now, but they were never universally accepted. And, but uh, you know, by about 250 to 300 AD, those two books started to fall off because the church leaders, one of them was kind of anti-Semitic. They said, that can't be the word of God, so they got rid of that one. And then the other one sort of faded away. And the other six that we have, over time, the church has said, no, we've got to accept these. These are the word of God. So that by about the 300s AD, you have the whole church around the world, without there ever being a meeting of church leaders that say, this is what the books of the Bible should be. By 300 AD and the 300s, you have lists of the exact 27 books of the New Testament that we have today popping up in churches all over the world that this is the word of God. How could you ever possibly manipulate a process like that? Hundreds of different places, thousands of different believers, ordinary, not ordinary, extraordinary, everything you can imagine, testing the word of God to see does the spirit bear witness, is this true, does this work in our lives, testing it over the period of a couple hundred years until finally, near the end of the fourth century, 393 AD, so the church leaders got together in a place called Hippo Regius, and I'm sure glad we don't name things like that anymore, but anyway, they got together in a place called Hippo Regius, and they said, we've just got to finally put our stamp on this thing, on the Word of God. Let's just make it official what the rest of the church already knows and has been using for centuries. That's how the Bible got put together. And while they were together at that meeting, while they were together at that meeting, they, did, they formally put down in writing the three criteria that the church had been using all along by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they just put down the three criteria of what separates books of the New Testament from all the other writings that didn't make it in. And by the way, it, let me just, another little rabbit trail here. You'll hear, again, you'll read about these things in Time Magazine and McLean's every once in a while. They get these guys from the Jew, Jesus Seminar or different things like that who they call them scholars and these guys are constantly attacking things in the Bible and you'll get them saying things like, well, Christians don't have the Gospel of Thomas in their Bible or Christians don't have the Gospel of Judas in their Bible and they should have it. Can I just tell you something? The reason the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas and all these other writings that they say should be in the Bible aren't in the Bible is because regular, thousands upon thousands of regular, everyday, ordinary Christians like yourselves said at the time already, this shouldn't be in the Bible. Those books never got any kind of universal acceptance anywhere in the church except in small slivers in heretical sects. And there's all kinds of bizarre things in those books. Like the Gospel of Thomas quotes Jesus as saying this, and I quote, in order for a woman to be saved, she must become a man. Should that be in the Bible? They already knew that a couple thousand years ago. This isn't the Bible. Okay, and now scholars dredge it up and say we've got a manipulated Bible. We don't have a manipulated Bible. We have a New Testament that was tested by thousands and thousands of people in hundreds of places over a couple hundred years, and the Holy Spirit alone could control and work through a, a process like that. Is that not true? So they identified three things. At that meeting in Hippo Regis, they said, these are the three criteria that the Holy Spirit has been using all along. And these are the things that separate... Uh, New Testament Word of God writings from just, you know, writings by human beings. And the three criteria were this, apostolic, only letters written by the original apostles, men who had actually lived with Jesus and knew Jesus, or men who were closely associated with those apostles could be accepted as scriptural. So it had to basically have been written, any letter that wasn't written by like an eyewitness, like one of the actual apostles who lived with Jesus, or like Luke, who was close friends with the apostles and traveled with them and spent much of his life with them. Only someone like that uh, writing like that could be accepted as scriptural, not just from any Joe Blow. Second criteria, how New Testament 
letters or differentiated from other ones that didn't make it in. Orthodoxy, only letters which did not contradict other scriptures could be accepted as scriptural. Okay, so again, like I said, Gospel Thomas, Gospel Judas, there's all kinds of weird ones that scholars bring up now that that should have been in the Bible. Well, there's a reason they didn't make it in. The Christian church never accepted them for many different reasons, who they were written by, orthodoxy, and finally, universality. They actually called it Catholicity. I just changed it to something that I think makes more sense for many of us here today, but universality. Only letters which the church as a whole, all across the world, attested to in the Spirit as being from God and relevant could be accepted as scriptural. That's how we got the 27 books of the New Testament. Never at a single meeting. Never, never, never. This was a Holy Spirit process over much time, attested to and approved by many, many different people. Hugely important. You say, okay, okay. So that's how the Bible got put together, but that was a long time ago. How do we know it hasn't changed since 393 AD? How do we know we still have the original stuff? How do we know it hasn't changed in the last 1,600 years? Okay, fine. I'll go with you that that was a Holy Spirit process that got the books of the Bible that we have in here, but maybe it's been corrupted since then. Maybe we don't have what the original apostles wrote. Well, that's a, that's a good question. Do we have, still here, 1,600 years later, do we have the books that the early church actually approved of? Do we have actually the original writings, what the apostles actually wrote to begin with? Or do we have a corruption? Well, how would you know? Okay, how would you know? If you don't have the original of a document, and all you have is copies, how do you know what the original said? Right, that's a, that's a big question. So let's say you have a document. Let's say it's an original document. Let's say it's a biblical document, whatever. Let's say you have an original document and it's been lost to all time and you find a copy of it like 100 years later, okay? But all you have is the copy. You don't have the original. You have one copy. Now, if all you have is one copy and you don't have an original to, to compare it to, you don't actually know how much you can trust that copy, do you? You have no idea because that copy could be totally different. That copy could have, you know, the copyist could have made horrible errors. He could have intentionally twisted things. He could have changed things and you would never know because you don't have the original to compare it to. But let's say you have this one copy of this original document, okay? And so you have this copy A and a few years later, someone else in a totally different place finds a second copy, copy B, of the same original document. Well, that's a very interesting find. You bring the two copies together, copy A and copy B, and you compare them. You don't, have a, you don't have an original to compare them to, but you compare them to each other, and you can look at them and you can say, wherever these two copies are identical to each other, we can be pretty confident that that's what the original said, because how else could two documents in different places end up identical to each other unless they both copied the same thing? Does that make sense? It makes sense to me anyway. Now let's say one of the, now let's say though that there's a couple of places where copy B and copy A disagree with each other. In those places, you don't know what the, what the original said because wherever copy B and copy A differ with each other, you don't know which one is closer to the original, right? So having two copies helps you a lot because you can see, you can get confidence about certain things in the original, but other things now you don't have confidence because you don't know which copy is right. But now let's say a few years go by and you find a third copy you find a third copy somewhere else of the same original document. Now that, again, that's very interesting. That's going to be very helpful. You're going to bring that third copy. You're going, to co you're going to compare A, B, and C, all three copies. And wherever all three copies are identical, you have high confidence, much confidence, that you know exactly what the original said. Because what are the chances that three different copies in three different places could say exactly the same thing unless they were perfectly copied from an original document somewhere, right? Does that make sense? 
And wherever A and B were different, you can now bring in copy C and compare it. And if copy C is, is identical to copy B, then you can say, well, these are the ones that got it right, and copy A, that's where the mistake is. And so with three copies, you can figure out with even more confidence what the original said. And the more and the more and the more copies you have, the more sure you can be of exactly what the original said. You don't have to have an original to know. The more copies you have, it's like having the original itself. So, for example, secular historians use this all the time because did you know that we basically don't have a single document, you know, a full original of any major historical work? We don't. We don't have an original. All we have, you know, in, you know, in the time that we live in, in modern times, the only, the only document records of any historical event in history we have are all, you know, copies that were made hundreds and hundreds of years after the event, okay? But in secular historians, they'll use what I just talked to you about. They use copies to figure out what the originals say, and they, they have full confidence that we know what the originals say. For example, Julius Caesar wrote a historical work uh, about the Gallic War, and we have 10 copies of that original work. We don't have an original. We have 10 copies. In fact, the uh, earliest copy we have was made, look up there, 950 years after the original, but we have 10 copies. By comparing those 10 copies with each other, secular historians feel basically 100% confident that we know exactly what the original said. Because you compare 10 documents, you can figure out very closely to 100% certainty exactly what that docu original document said. So secular historians have no doubt that we know what the original said. Tacitus History, one of the most important uh, historical works of antiqu antiquity, we have 20 copies of Tacitus' history, and the earliest one we have was written a thousand years after the original. We don't have an original, we just have 20 copies. But by having 20 copies, historians feel extremely certain that we have exactly what Tacitus wrote in the beginning. Okay? That's from 20 copies. That's from 10 copies. You want to know how many copies we have of the New Testament? Well, you can see it up there already. We have five, more than 5,000, 5,200 some. We have 5,200 and some copies of the, in the original Greek alone. Over 5,000. We have, when you want to count all the languages together, we have 25,000 plus copies of the original manuscripts. When you have that many thousands, do you know what they now say? They, they put a mathematical number on it. We have... 99.5% of the words in the New Testament, 99.5% of them, we have absolute, total certainty that we know what the original said. Only 0.5% of the words in the New Testament, are, is there any kind of dispute or question, is that what was actually in the original? And you know what most of those disputes are about? Spelling, things like that. Nothing having to do with major doctrine. 99.5% of the words in your New Testament are we can be completely confident, not just non-Christian scholars, or I mean, not just Christian scholars, non-Christian scholars as well, would have complete confidence. They wouldn't believe that it was true, but they would have complete confidence that we have here exactly what the early apostles wrote. So, this is the word of God. We've got a book where the books were tested over a couple hundred years by thousands of Christians in hundreds of places and the Holy Spirit attested to them and it all rose up all over the place at the same time. We have a book that was put together by the church and the Holy Spirit in the early church and we can trust that. We have enough manuscripts to guarantee that we know exactly, exactly what the originals said. We can have confidence that we have 
what the, we have exactly what Jesus wanted us to get. So you say, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Does it matter that we can have confidence like this? Yes, it matters. Three reasons. First of all, our God is not just big enough to create the entire universe. He's also big enough to preserve for us an accurate record of his message to us. That matters. He's not just big enough to create everything. He's big enough to work through sovereignly through human events and make sure we get a proper Bible we can trust. Number two, it does matter. Secondly, if these really are God's words to us, then it is absolutely necessary that we pay attention to all of them. Well, I think one of the biggest reasons, deep down, if you actually probe deep down, I think one of the biggest reasons liberal uh, Christians are questioning whether or not this is the word of God nowadays, the biggest reason has to do with this. They don't want to do what it says. They don't like who God is, and they don't want to do what it says. So, what are we going to do about that? Maybe they're tied to tradition. I don't know why you even keep calling yourself a Christian. But for whatever reason, they want to keep calling themselves a Christian. They have this nice idea of what God could be and what Christianity is, but they don't want to do what it actually says. So how are you going to get away with it then? What you have to do is cast a cloud of suspicion over this whole book and deny that it's actually God's word, and then you can ignore it and still feel good about yourself as a Christian. But if this really is God's word to us, think about that. That is a serious question. If this actually is God's word to us, then we must obey it because we're going to face him someday. And we must believe that he is who he says he is. And there's a third reason why confidence in God's word matters, and that's this. You can't give your whole life up for something unless you're really confident it's true. You want to know why it matters? How this thing was put together and why it matters that we have all these manuscripts and we can trust it. You want to know why it matters? Because you won't be able to live the life of faith you're called to in here unless you really believe it's true. You go to some jail in China right now in the underground church, or the underground church in, in, the, in a Muslim word, world, you go into some Iranian jail and some pastor that's in jail there and he can't see his family and he's beaten and he's persecuted and he could die and you ask him, hey, is this thing actually from God? Do you trust it? Do you think it's true? And I'm going to tell you one answer you're not going to get. You are not ever going to hear a maybe. Because nobody will be persecuted for a Maybe. Nobody's going to give their life to Christ and give up everything they have, which is what Jesus calls all of us to do, not just the ones in China and the ones in the Islamic world. You're not going to give up everything you have to live all out for Jesus if you have doubts that maybe this is a fairy tale and it's not really from God. Oh, you can, you can play the game. You can call yourself a Christian and go to church and feel all intellectual and feel good about yourself because you're smarter than those blind fundamentalists who just think, who actually believe that this is actually literally from God. And you can feel good about yourself and you can call yourself a Christian and you can play the game, but you'll never actually have your skin in the game. You'll never actually pick up your cross. You'll never do, like Pastor Ray, it's not just the ones in persecuted Christians. You know, Pastor Ray didn't give up his dream career in flying to take up absolutely no money and start a church with no financial backing and no support in Woodstock, Ontario. You won't do something that crazy and which from a human perspective is actually stupid. You won't do that for Jesus. Pastor Ray didn't wake up one day and say, gee, I have serious doubts about this thing. I don't think it's from God. I'm going to give my whole life to Jesus. You can go to the top of a bridge and stand at the end edge and say, I'm a brave bungee jumper, but never jump off. 
you can do that. If, you don't have to have trust in the cord if you're not actually going to jump off. You can just stand there and say, hey, I made it up here. I don't trust the cord. If you don't trust the cord, you're not going to jump off. The only people that are going to jump off are the ones who think that cord is actually tied down to something. And the only Christians who are going to live the life of faith that we're called to in here are Christians who are absolutely convinced that this really is from him, that this really is from God. And that's why I think the devil, more than ever before in these days, as we enter into the last days, wants to attack this book. Because if he can sow enough doubt, if that poison on this issue, I'm not saying there are no issues that Christians can doubt. We can have doubt and uncertainty about all kinds of things. But if you have doubt about whether this is the word of God, he's got you already because you'll never live the sacrificial, crazy faith life that Jesus wants you to live. So I don't know about you, but I don't want to play games. I want the real thing. That's what this series is about. I want to play games. If you don't want to believe it all out, if you don't want to believe all of it, there's lots of things you can be besides a Christian. But if we're going to call ourselves Christians, rather than playing games, let's decide in our hearts today, is this actually from God or not? And if it is from God... If this thing actually is from God, then we've got to live our lives based on it. Bow your heads with me, close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we do not want to be a church here at Southland that just plays around. We don't want to just be Christians. We want to be true people of God. We want to be men and women of faith. And in order to live the life you've called us to, in order to live in a way that we are not shaming our brothers and sisters who are in persecution all around the world, Father, in order to live up to the standard they call us to, to and to live up to the standard that we're called to by the men and women of faith in the Bible, Lord Jesus, we must have confidence that you are real and that your words to us are trustworthy. I pray that that belief would go deep, deep into our hearts by the Holy Spirit today and that we could live by them. In your name I pray, amen.